I invite you to be seated. I also invite you to pray with me. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks um, that we can come and we can come with our questions intact. We pray that you uh, might speak to us having read your scripture and also that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God. Amen. Amen. So, um, did anyone feel a little bit sacrilegious for a moment there, singing (laughs) the word of God for us, the people of God, at the end of that? So, the thing is that I told the children's story, right? But the children's story, like oftentimes when we tell, often leaves out just this critical piece that later on in life we go back to Scripture and then we say to ourselves, wait, wait a second, I don't remember it that way. So you might have been tracking the Scripture reading up until the very last sentence of the Scripture, right? Which is probably the most problematic part that many of us find a really hard time with. So if you're in this room and you cringed at the end, and when we sang the Gloria Patri after reading those words and you just felt uncomfortable, you are in a safe place. Because I kid you not, the most popular question I get when I read the Old Testament is, do we have to kind of read these words and follow them? Like, what do we do about all of the challenging things within it? And there's probably no other more challenging one than the conquest stories of the people of Israel making it into the land of promise. Because while we might have been told when we were kids, you know, that we just had to obey God and that God would, you know, break down the walls before us, we might not have been told about the idea that, you know, by the edge of the sword, everything was to be destroyed within the city. In fact, the video that I did that I paraphrased literally just has this, like, image of this giant Jericho city, and then everything in the city just crumbles, and it's like God parted the Red Sea. So, like, they're, like, on the way to the promised land, right? It completely avoids the the actuality of what's happening within this text. And so when we come back to it later in life and, you know, we're trying to be good Christians and opening up our Bibles, you know, we get the dust off and we start reading through the stories and then all of a sudden we come to this because, you know, 95% of us when we start reading the Bible for the first time in a while start in the Old Testament, right? Because that's the beginning of the book. And we get to about this time, Joshua. If we've made it through Numbers and Leviticus and made it through Deuteronomy, you just like get to Joshua because that's the next uh, chapter in the book and you're just like, okay, okay, God, I can't do this anymore. It's going to go back on the shelf for a couple more months until I devote the energy to it. And so I have heard as a pastor over and over again the challenges that our people have with texts like the Old Testament. Now, disclaimer number one, disclaimer number one, I am one of the people that tends to gloss over things. So, for example, I will watch a movie. It's like The Matrix was one of my favorite movies in high school. I don't know, that kind of, like, if you remember that, it's like a Keanu Reeves and it's a sci-fi thriller. I loved it because it had so much theology and philosophy kind of woven into the movie. But I had friends that, like, couldn't get past the, the violence or the other things in the movies, right? And they're just like, oh, I can't believe you watched those movies. But I'm one of the people that I'll lift out the story and the theme and the ideas. And so some of the like raw kind of things that might turn other people off, they just, I don't know, they don't bother me as much as they do other people. So if you're one of those people that just can't make it through a movie no matter what, you, you might have a hard time with the Old Testament in general, right, at different times, right? And I'm, I'm just letting you know, I have this propens- ability to just gloss over some of that and be okay with it. But 
now that that's out of the way, I want to kind of address something that we've been talking about for a number of weeks, and that is the Bible is not, okay, you ready? The Bible is not an historical account of how things came to be. Did you know that? In fact, my first lesson in learning that sometimes the stories that people tell um, aren't always factual. I grew up in Minnesota, and uh, growing up in Minnesota, one of the things that you do is you spend time on the lake. And spending time on the lake, you fish, right? And so I grew up fishing with my uh, brothers and cousins. And, you know, this one time we were out and on our dock at the cabin, and we were fishing with my cousins, and, you know, they, we couldn't catch anything all day. And then all of a sudden, we all leave, and my brother comes back, and he says, guys, guys, you won't believe it. I caught a northern this big, this big, I swear, I caught it. I had a perch that was on the line. The northern came up and grabbed the perch, and then it was like this big. And then we go, really, Michael? Is that really the way, is that really the way it happened? And then we came up, and we find the northern. It was like this baby little thing, like this big, right? But in his mind, it was this big, right? Has anyone ever had a, a, a tall tale story of your own that you have? You know, the, the, the fish that was this big, or the, the giant hill that you skied down that was, you were swear was like this when you were a kid, but, you know, it was actually a blue square at the, you know, actual resort. You know, those stories that we just tend to kind of add just a little bit to. Well, there is an entire field of education around the Bible called redactive criticism. Redactive criticism is a super, super fancy word for the people that study the ways in which the Bible has been tweaked a little bit throughout history. If you don't know the story of Joshua, the one that we just read of Israel going through uh, this land and taking over, I mean, this, we're talking like 1300, right, BC, before Christ. This is the time frame in which this is supposedly happening. And I don't know if you know anything about archaeological evidence and different things like that, but that's a long, 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 long time ago to get really factual with it, right? And so what the scholars have realized is that throughout history, the people that have passed on the Bible that started with oral tradition and then made its way to pen and paper, well, they also had a tendency to kind of add some things to it, right? And I know for some of us that are like literal people, you might think to yourself, like, I can't believe the pastor is talking about the Bible being changed throughout history. And that's okay. But they teach us it, right? And we actually have to study it, and we have to actually go over it and over it and over it again. Today's a little academic, sorry. I, I'm just throwing it out there. But one of the things that we've come to know about at least the early form of the, New Test of the Old Testament, especially from Genesis on to the conquest years, is that there's a theory called <laughs> JEDP theory. And that's a fancy word for groups of people throughout the history of the Bible that have left significant marks on the Bible. And how we know it, for example, is that the Shema, the most popular Bible, or Bible verse in all of the Old Testament, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, it shows up in Deuteronomy first. Not in Exodus, when God calls God's people, not in Genesis, when God begins everything, but it shows up in Deuteronomy, and then it shows up again in places like Joshua and Judges and Kings. 
And so that is a cue that the scholars have had to say that this phrase at one point in time started getting used and used and used a little bit more, right? I mean, it's just like a cue that we have by the language and the turns of phrases that people are doing. You get a sense of writers having a little different slant upon this. And so if you are one of those people that have wondered about the Old Testament and some of the violence and conquest within it, the best way that I can describe is that you had these groups, groups of different people that had their areas upon it. You had the Yahwists, the Eloists, you had the priests, you had the Deuteronomists, you had the JEDP groups. Well, the last group that we know of is the group known as the Deuteronomists. And this was a particular group writing at the return of the exile. If you know anything about the history of Jerusalem or God's people, is that they make their way into the promised land, right? This conquest happens. And then as they get into the promised land, they, you know, King David and Solomon, they build the grand temples, and it's kind of like their golden years as a people. But then the Assyrian Empire comes in and destroys half the kingdom. And then later on, the Babylonian Empire not only comes in, but comes in and sends all of God's people into Babylon. It sends them into Babylon. And then it's later on that they are able to send them back. The Edict of Cyrus, I think it was. They send God's people back. And as they're sending God's people back, if you spend 70 plus years in a new country? How many of you spent two years in a foreign country? How many of you have one of your favorite foods now is from that country that you've spent two years, right? That if you've spent significant time out of this country, that has had an impact. I've spent one year in Japan. It has had a lifelong impact on me. And I know for many of you, you've spent time outside of the U.S. and it's had a lifelong impact on you. And so here, God's people had spent 70 years, an entire generation had spent it outside of the land of Israel, outside of the people that are eating particular ways, praying at certain times, having the festivals when they're supposed to be having the festivals. And you could imagine you had some wayward Jews at that point in their lives. Who is this Yahweh and Moses guy, and what are we supposed to eat certain ways, right? Like, we've been doing it this way for 70 years. And so God's people are making their way back into the land that God had promised. And as they're doing it, this group of writers known as the Deuteronomists are putting some extra flavor of nationalism within it, right? I know it sounds really bad, and it sounds like, oh, I can't believe they would change the text. But if you're putting yourself within the perspective of the people at the time, the people, the priests, the writers, wanted the people of God as they went back into Israel to believe that God had destined them to be a faithful, committed people to the way in which God had shown them. They're not drastically altering the text. They're not changing everything about it, but they're trying to kind of rev up the energy and the excitement for being God's people back in this place. And so they tell the story of the very old, mighty kingdom or city of Jericho, that the people of God just obeyed God and God laid it to rubble. Side note, is that what we probably know from all archaeological evidence is that Jericho had already been destroyed 
before Israel had even come into the area. So they'd taken this little tidbit, this giant city that was once great, and people heard about it and knew about it, and then they said that it was God's people going into the promised land had made this happen, had made this happen. And for some of you, it might be, one, just too much information. And so if you've stuck with me this far, thank you for that, okay? For others of you, you might be upset, and you're like, just talk to me afterwards. I'll take the bombardment. It'll be okay. And for others still, you might be like, wait a second. This is like, this happened? This makes so much more sense than how I might approach the Bible just for a little bit. Because as you start to kind of go through some of the layers, well, I start to then think about, well, what else is this text telling us? Okay, sure, we have a little bit of sense that these Deuteronomists are writing about this kind of national machismo of like going in and taking over all the land, right? But what else is there? And you might have found what I think in this text to be the most valuable nugget amidst all the other junk. Like I said, I can lift it out. And that's all of everything in this area was to be destroyed, except for one household, Rahab's household. And I particularly could preach an entire sermon series on this character of Rahab and the interesting components to it. Because let's just think about it for a second, right? God's scouts went off to scout out Jericho and ended up in the household of Rahab, right? They weren't making wise choices, okay? All right? They weren't making wise choices. Ended up in the household of Rahab, who then offers these people not just the hospitality of her trade, but offers these people uh, an abundance of hospitality to safeguard them against what was to come their way. And gives them a route out so they can escape and then they can go and tell why. We don't know why. We don't know what spark that this foreign Canaanite had to protect God's people. But what we do know is that in the midst of a conquest, the one other person, the Canaanite prostitute, became a faithful embodiment of living out a life following this God. And so much so that she not only is spared amidst this, but she finds her lineage to Jesus himself. That the lineage of our Savior is bound to this person that ought to have been relegated to the side, ought to have been punished, ought to have been kicked out into the curb. And amidst of their conquest, the other was still included and found a home. And I can't tell you how much, like, that little piece amidst the, what could also be described as genocide, right? That little piece offers hope within these complicated and convoluted texts. That even as we see sort of the, the dynamics, we find these nuggets of Rahab saving God's people of these three women who, amidst all of the atrocities that Pharaoh and his accompaniments were about to commit, take baby Moses and put him down the Nile and follow him and care for him 
and ensure his safety and protection. That amidst the mistakes of the scouts as they go off, God still finds a way to work with God's people, making it through. And the writers of the texts, and the rewriters, and the rewriters, trying to find ways ultimately to do one thing, to have God's people remain faithful even amidst the circumstances they find themselves in. Remain faithful and, you know, commit yourself to the love of God, even though you'd been around other people that were worshiping other gods. Remain faithful even as life's challenges come your way. Remain faithful even amidst your questions. Because, friends, if I believed that everything in the Bible said what it is and is what it said, I never would have been able to explore some of the complexities and the beauties of it. Because the more you learn about the Bible, unfortunately, the more questions you have. And the more questions you have, the more you learn, and it continues this cycle. In fact, one of the most faithful ways to read the Old Testament is finding yourself within rabbinic tradition, because they were there to start. And if you know anything about the rabbinic tradition commentaries, it's just a bunch of questions over and over again. One rabbi asks another, and another asks the other, and the other asks the other, and they continue the questions that continue the story, that continue to bring meaning here and now. Even though times have changed, even though we don't condone the things that we see, even though it makes us cringe <laughs> and to say the word of God for us, the people of God. And that's the beauty, I think, of this old story is that we have the opportunity to make it new. And by making it new and interpreting and wrestling through the struggles and the challenges and like, I don't know about that, I don't like that, you're not being unfaithful to the texts. You're in fact doing what the history of God's people have done since the beginning. They question, they interpret, they question, all in hopes to find a way to be God's love in this moment. So let us follow the same trajectory, bringing our questions, our doubts, and hoping and praying that God's love will meet us here and now. I invite you to pray with me. Holy and gracious God, we give you thanks for the many, many people that have gone before us. For those that have tried to interpret your love and what faithfulness looks like throughout the millennia. Help us not assume that we cannot ask questions of the texts, that we must not gloss over all of its problems, but that, that we question and we explore, we might find new hope and new meaning. So let us place ourselves within the long tradition of your faithful followers. 
who try to hear your voice calling to them and try to live out faithfulness no matter what life brings. And so as we look to the story of Jericho, we remember that you guide us even amidst our fears. And that the walls and the obstacles in front of us can fall down as we attempt to be faithful to you, even amidst life's challenges. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.